Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Two years ago, Hurricane Katrina struck with a vengeance, one of the greatest natural disasters in U.S. history. But critics charged the catastrophe in New Orleans was a human failure. You know, what happened to, during Hurricane Katrina was in many ways the tragedy of priorities. You know, everybody knew that wetlands are important. Everybody knew that, uh, that New Orleans was vulnerable. But it was never anybody's top priority to make sure that this didn't happen. Also, a living hell atop a burning coal mine in India. I was cleaning the house when there was a crunching noise and the floor beneath me gave way. My feet went in and there was smoke all around. And Spider-Men seduce Spider-Women with songs played on strands of silk. This week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerman. It was just two years ago, August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina took aim on the Gulf Coast of the United States. This is the eye wall. We're in the eye wall. There's a surge. Oh, my God. Katrina was one of the most powerful, costly, and deadly storms to strike the United States. The most severe loss of life was in New Orleans, 80% of the city was underwater. But much, if not most, of the deaths and destruction were due not to the natural disaster, but human failure. There have been three major engineering investigations into the city's catastrophe. They generally agree that New Orleans' system of levees was poorly designed and built by the Army Corps of Engineers. But Michael Grunwald, a senior correspondent for Time magazine, who covered the Corps for the six years before Katrina struck, goes even further. He says the Corps and Congress are directly responsible for the disaster. You know, I think uh, after Hurricane Katrina, you know, the levees broke in just, you know, it was a split second and nobody was watching. Um, and then for a week we got to watch this paralyzed response, um, and everybody saw that. But the fact is, if the levees hadn't busted, uh, you never would have heard the phrase, heck of a job, Brownie. You never would have had the squalor in the Superdome. And if the levees had been de- designed and constructed properly and the Army Corps of Engineers had done its job, um, it really wouldn't have been a big deal for the city. Well, your story in Time magazine really is a, a scathing indictment of the Corps. And you write that the Corps is still a Corps of Engineers and, and not a Corps of Ecologists. What do you mean by that? You know, the, the Army Corps is a, a strange beast. You know, it, it began building fortifications at Bunker Hill and George Washington's Revolutionary Army. Um, but it really sort of, it's best known, and what really has been its bread and butter is sort of damming and diking rivers, um, you know, pouring sand onto beaches. Essentially, they've been the shock troops in America's war against nature. And so, now we're trying to count on them to sort of build sustainably to help restore some of the mistakes they've made in the past. But uh, I think you know, it still is their engineers. They, uh, you know, their motto is "Essayons, let us try," and uh, they still like to move dirt and pour concrete. 
But haven't they made any progress towards, you know, freeing up the Mississippi in terms of, you know, sediments and building up land, coastal protection? No. <laughs> um, they, they really haven't. Um, you know, over the years, they've you know, reduced the sediment load that's coming down the Mississippi River by more than half. Um, and that sediment used to essentially, that's how southern Louisiana was built from the Mississippi River. New Orleans was built on a natural levee, sediment deposited by the river. Um, and it created 7,000 square miles of coastal wetlands that used to provide this natural buffer that separated New Orleans from the Gulf. And as the Army Corps sort of throttled that river and manhandled it into a ditch um, and has really stopped that natural land-building process, uh, you have the city starting to sink, and uh, that's why it's this city in a bowl below sea level instead of sitting up high on the, on the natural levee, and those coastal wetlands have started to disappear. Um, and that's what really left New Orleans so exposed. You don't hear New Orleans was not originally a coastal city. It was an inland city, but the fact is that the Gulf has now moved about 20 miles closer to the city, and some of the scientists are saying that in 10 years it's going to be at the New Orleans suburbs. Well, in one of your most recent articles, actually, you cite an LSU hydraulic engineer who points out that about 100 yards of cypress trees can reduce you know, the wave action there by about 95%. If scientists understand what needs to be done along the Gulf Coast, why... Why doesn't that work well underway at this point? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, what happened to, during Hurricane Katrina was in many ways the tragedy of priorities. Um, you know, everybody knew that wetlands are important. Everybody knew that, uh, that New Orleans was vulnerable. But it was never anybody's top priority to make sure that this didn't happen. Um, and so that's why you have, you know, Louisiana's congressional delegation um, at a time when, you know, they, they never could get the Corps to build decent levees for New Orleans and never really did get a decent restoration program going for those coastal wetlands. You had these incredible boondoggles were still getting funded, like the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, which is supposed to provide a kind of shipping shortcut to the port of New Orleans, but actually ended up increasing Katrina's surge and and contributing to the disaster. So again, it's uh, it's, you know, it's, the core is this strange beast that's kind of controlled by Congress. You hear a lot about these earmarks, and the entire core budget almost is, is controlled by these congressional earmarks. It's pet projects. And uh, the pet projects were not the projects that made New Orleans safe. So improper influence, political influence, influencing the, uh, the setting of priorities. Well, I think uh, what the core would say, and there's some fairness to it, is that uh, is that they reflect America's priorities, and that America never made it a top priority. I think it's not entirely true, because first of all, the Army Corps has a lot of influence on what it gets to do, and it doesn't do anything until it says, hey, this is a, this is a justified project. Um, but the fact is, America never stood up and said, you know, our top priority is to make sure that New Orleans is never drowned by even by a moderate hurricane. And unfortunately, we still haven't really said that. Um, so far, there's been $7 billion uh, appropriated for the Corps down there. And, you know, just chicken change has gone for, for any rebuilding of wetlands. Um, it's still going to take another four years for the Corps just to provide protection from what they say is a 100-year storm. And, uh, and, you know, these 100-year these storms seem to be coming every few years now. 
Um, so the city is still extremely vulnerable, and um, the work is going pretty slow. So you don't sound like uh, there's any chance for things to go right. Well, I wouldn't say that because, uh, you know, maybe I'm just a perpetual optimist. But um, when you talk to the scientists, it's, I mean, I don't want to understate the difficulty of the challenge, um, but they say that they know what to do, you know, and that it can be done. It's just a question of, you know, getting Congress and the court to do it. Essentially, you want to you want to stop building levees across marshes. You want to stop promoting development in the most flood-prone areas, and you want to start trying to get that sediment down to the down to the Gulf. Unfortunately, right now Congress is about to approve uh, the first sort of set of post-Katrina projects, and the big one does exactly the opposite. It's another billion-dollar levy through marshes. Um, that's gonna, they're starting to call it the, the Great Wall of Louisiana. Um, this is to protect these isolated coastal towns that you've never heard of with names like Dulac and Covin and Montague. Um, and, you know, these are places that may already be doomed. And by building them, building them these $15 million a mile levees, you're essentially telling people don't elevate your houses, don't move to higher ground, the government's going to take care of you. And uh, it, it suggests that the lessons of Katrina have not been learned. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Michael Grunwald is a senior correspondent for Time magazine. Actor Leonardo DiCaprio has been nominated for three Oscars for his performance in blockbuster films including Blood Diamond and The Aviator. But DiCaprio's most powerful role may be his latest, which involves virtually no acting at all. The evidence is now clear. Industrial civilization has caused irreparable damage. Our political and corporate leaders have consistently ignored the overwhelming scientific evidence. Not only is it the 11th hour, it's 11.59. Leonardo DiCaprio is the narrator of the new film, The 11th Hour. The documentary, which he also produced, deals with what DiCaprio calls a convergence of environmental crises. The 11th Hour opens this week in theaters across the country. Tobin Heck has our review. For the first time since Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio is not the star of his latest film. In fact, he's rarely on screen in his new environment crisis documentary, The 11th Hour. DiCaprio's a mouthpiece here, lending his larger-than-life name to a cause he's clearly passionate about. The limelight falls instead on a barrage of more than 50 big-name scientists, academics, entrepreneurs, religious leaders, politicians, and more. This strength-in-numbers approach means that no matter what your background or interests, there's something in this film for you. If business is your thing, or you're concerned about national security, James Woolsey, Booz Allen VP and former CIA director, talks to you about the implications of dependence on oil. If someone you care about is fighting serious illness, endocrinologist Theo Colborn will tell you about the connections between chemicals we use every day and rising rates of cancers, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. In need of numbers and hard evidence? Activist Bill McKibben explains that 20% of all Arctic ice has melted, and the speed and duration of hurricanes has increased by 50%. 
In other words, no matter who you are, to ignore the film's message simply won't be an option once you've paid your 10 bucks and settled into your seat. DiCaprio could have been a little less academic in his appeals. He's a little too good, too grammatically correct, too conscious of the fact that he's narrating a documentary instead of playing a role in a blockbuster. He's not an investigative reporter, after all, but one of today's most intelligent, conscientious, and talented actors. He's in a powerful position to speak to the millions of Americans who don't compost yet, but who flock to theaters for Catch Me If You Can, and kudos to him for stepping up to the plate. The 11th hour administers a healthy dose of Katrina and hits all the biggies, global warming, deforestation, overfishing, big oil, health issues. But its tone is solution-oriented and its social commentary fearless. It doesn't stop at what's wrong with the earth, but asks what's wrong with us, our relationship with nature and with ourselves. And it pulls no punches. We're greedy consumers. We're lost. We're an infection on the earth. We're pursuing happiness in all the wrong ways and writing our own death sentence in the process. But for every down-with-people sentiment expressed in the film, a note of hope is offered up as well. As author Paul Hawken reminds us, the great thing about this age is that we get to reimagine every single thing that we do. If this is, in fact, the 11th hour, then it's also a great time to be alive because this generation gets to completely change this world. The film is The 11th Hour. Our reviewer, Tobin Hack, is the arts critic for Plenty Magazine and a former producer here at Living on Earth. Coming up, living above an inferno in India, hell on earth atop a coal fire. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Working in coal mines is a dirty, dangerous, too often deadly occupation. In Utah, authorities have given up hope for the six miners trapped by the collapse at the Crandall Canyon mine. Three rescuers were also killed there trying to reach the men. And in China, almost 200 miners died this month after torrential rains flooded two coal mines there. Living near coal mines can also be dangerous. Today, we continue our series, Generating Controversy, the Changing Climate of Coal, with a visit to Jaria in eastern India's coal country, where an underground coal fire has been smoldering for almost 100 years. As reporter Nilanjana Bomek tells us, residents of Jaria say that life above the fire is a living hell. I was cleaning the house when there was a crunching noise, and the floor beneath me gave way. My feet went in, and there was smoke all around. The floor dropped down by six feet almost. I had to pour 200 gallons of water, 50 bags of sand, and 40 bags of gravel to repair the damage. And if you were sleeping that night, we would all have either choked or burned to death. Rani Devi and Gaur Karmakar are a middle-aged couple who live in the village of Kumarabasti, the potter's village, half an hour from the coal mining town of Jaria. What collapsed the floor of their home that day was a mine fire that's been slowly spreading in the area for 90 years, since 1916. The land here is barren in some places, the vegetation cooked from below. The fire forced the relocation of the village railway station, but people here and eight other villages on top of the fire have stayed. As I drove around the area, the air felt heavy and smoky. 
children played and women did their housework in the smoke. Because of the fire, we stay outside with our children during the daytime and return only at nightfall. They have asked us to vacate this place and go, but where will we go? This is the potter's village and our livelihood is pottery. If we leave our livelihood, we have nothing. The potters here actually use the roasted soil in their work. There is also work in the mines. Mines that have active fires burning are closed, but other mines nearby are operating. Workers walk towards the elevators that take them underground to their shifts. They walk against a backdrop of smoke. Orange flames poke out from places where the rock glows red. People here say what they fear most is losing a family member to a floor collapse, like the one at Rani Devi and Gold Karmaka's home. But an outsider can't help but notice another threat, the poisonous gases. People are sick. <coughs> the children are the most affected. You see my son? He has been suffering since he was only one and a half months old. He had asthma ever since he was born. What can we do? We are poor people. We have accepted this as our fate. Shankar Mahato lives in one of the villages over the fire. He sits at a medical clinic with his 18-month-old. He says his son has been diagnosed with pneumonia, asthma and tuberculosis in his short life. Around us, people waiting to see the doctor look worn out. Most of them are coughing badly. Dr. Rajiv Agarwal, who has been practicing in the area for the last 20 years, explains how the gases affect people's health. I mostly treat patients with tuberculosis, bronchial asthma. The damage is irreversible. Gases like carbon monoxide and methane hamper proper growth of children in this area. The raging fires in the coal mines not only render the air unsuitable for breathing, but also bring other practical problems. The only river that used to be a source of fresh water for the inhabitants of these villages has dried up and at best produces some contaminated water. Juma Mahato and Kajri Billo. We have to travel to Jhoria town, which is one and a half mile away from here. We go walking and bring the water back. People fight for just a bit of water. It is very tiring and troublesome. The coal mines of this district are mostly owned by Bharat Coking Coal Limited, a subsidiary of India's state-owned coal company. The coal fires are costing money, about $650 million in lost high-grade coking coal so far. That may be why Indian President APJ Abdul Kalam recently ordered the Indian Coal Ministry to find a solution and quickly. But quenching coal fires is difficult and often unsuccessful. As for the people here, the government has come up with a plan to move the mainly government workers who live in Jharia town. But there are no such plans for the poorer people of the surrounding villages. The government calls them encroachers and claims that they do not have the residence papers required of everyone in India. The villagers have just been asked to vacate the area and move to safer zones. 
district magistrate Bila Rajesh. No, it is a very uh, chronic problem, in fact, which has been uh, the fire has been raging for nearly hundred years, and it uh, it is a definitely very sensitive issue, and it uh, needs to be addressed urgently. People were under the impression that perhaps the fire should be controlled, and you know people should not uh, be have have to shift out from the place because they've been living there there for generations. So, so they find it very difficult to think that why if our parents have lived here, if past few generations have lived here, why not us as well? It's true, many residents of the area say they prefer to stay. Swarup Mandal is a member of the Save Jharia organization. This is a historic city. It had agriculture and some of the lowest food prices in the country. That's even true today, but such a huge market will be destroyed. It's just unthinkable. India's coal secretary, Prakash Chandra Parekh, however, claims residents are willing to relocate. I went in the morning to one of those sites. There was not one person who said that he has any problem. They said, yes, as soon as you make us available alternative place, we'll move out from there. In the evening, women set out mud ovens and prepare dinner. Little girls are entrusted with kneading the dough for the chapati while their mothers grind spices. The men folk smoke and chat outside, sitting on beds of woven rope. At a glance, a normal village scenario. The only difference is that in most of India, people do these activities inside their homes. Here, they do them outside. Because at any moment, the raging fire underneath could engulf them. For Living on Earth, I'm Nilanjana Bhomik in Jharia, Eastern India. This week in Washington, well, actually not much happened. It's late August, after all. Congress is on vacation. The president is on vacation. Even our own Washington correspondent Jeff Young is on vacation. So at least on this program, you'll hear no news this week out of Washington. Instead, here's a story closer to home about some people working hard to get to Washington. There's a fenced-in parking lot on the campus of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology that looks like a scene out of the TV series MASH. There's a metal Quonset hut, a sign pointing the way to distant places, and in the air, a sense of improv and irreverence. In fact, on the MIT campus here in Cambridge, they call this place MASH. It stands for Modern All-Solar House. MIT is one of 20 teams of college and university students competing in the Department of Energy's Solar Decathlon. It challenges students to construct houses powered entirely by the sun. It means squeezing every watt of energy from the solar homes they build. And like the show MASH, rules are, well, creatively flexible. My name's Jonah DeCola, and I'm a construction manager and I've been brought in to help the Solar Decathlon team sort out all the chaos of this new technology. Are you an MIT student? 
No, I'm not. I'm, I'm a freelance construction manager. You're a ringer? I'm a ringer, yes. Is that allowed by the rules? Um, for, for support, absolutely. Sure, to consult with experts. Did you ever build anything like this house? Green affordable housing has been a passion of mine. I've been doing some projects in Boston for a number of years. So bringing this technology to market is the key. And so how is that transition going to happen without folks being able to familiarize themselves with the products so that it has a seamless transition? What we're facing as far as the future of green building in practical terms is the ability to bring this technology to market. The solar decathlon requires teams to use off-the-shelf products in new and creative ways. The idea to demonstrate solar energy is technically and economically feasible today. MIT students have been building their house since spring. It's almost done, but almost as soon as it's finished, they'll have to take it apart, truck it to Washington, D.C., and reassemble it on the National Mall, where the 20 solar decathlon homes will be judged in 10 contests, just like the Olympic decathlon. The categories include architecture, livability, comfort, appliances, and hot water production. The solar-sufficient homes even have to power an electric car, using energy produced only by the house. Kurt Kevel, the principal investigator for MIT's entry in the solar decathlon, details the rules. So the competition uh, favors a, a levelized energy analysis uh, for for your locale. You sound like somebody who's from MIT. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you have to build an 800 square foot house that's completely off-grid. You have to power a car as well as all of your appliances, washer, dryer, stove, etc. off of any energy that you generate from the sun. Okay, so let's take a tour. Sure. Okay, we're walking up a flight of stairs. Uh, we're simulating where we're going to be on the mall uh, with stilts. And in the mall, we're not allowed to dig into the ground, so we're building it on uh, diamond pier pin foundations. Now, I notice that you're not using that white stuff that they usually put on the outside of houses before they put on the, the finish. You've got this green guard. Ring. That, what is that? That's right. This is a, a, a new style house wrap that actually wicks the water. If you look on the inside of this material, it actually wicks the water from the top to the bottom. Uh, it, it's got this nice little sort of plastic capillary system that brings the water down. And this this will keep our, our OSB, our, our um, plywood, uh, good and dry. OSB? OSB, yeah. Uh, it's it's the, the plywood that's on the outside of our structural insulated panels. I think you can see on that gap there, a sip is, is two pieces of plywood separated by six, eight, or ten inches of, of polystyrene, of styrofoam. And it turns out that's a really good way to, uh, to not only get high thermal R values, but it's also quite light. It's very easy to work with. I mean, we, all of these walls were put up with basically two-man lifts, and we just, we just clicked them together like Legos. And you're going to unclick them to get them to Washington. That's right, yeah. They, this is another thing we would do differently. We, we use screws in this house rather than nails because we're going to have to disassemble it, reassemble it, and then one more disassemble, reassemble at the end of the competition. Now, how efficient is this house going to be? Uh, well, that's where we think we're going to make our bones. We have a really good, you see how the light is falling right now. We have a really good uh, way to capture daylighting, so we won't, we won't have to turn the house lights on at all during, during uh, the day. Uh, we also have a fairly innovative 
cross flow of air. We've got we've got windows down low to bring in cold air on the cold side of the house, and windows up high to to blow it out. We've got skylights and clear story windows up up in our eaves here to carry the air through, and that'll give us some good uh, some good natural convection. Now this is New England. It gets cold. That's right. And those walls look like standard sized walls. Anything special in the walls? Um, the, these sips are, are are rated quite highly. We. Uh, we, we can specify the thickness of a sip. Our, our, our roof, the structurally insulated panels on the roof, are uh, a couple more inches thick than our walls. We think we're going to have plenty of heat in the house, so our walls are, are uh, six inches thick and our, our roof is 10 inches. What's the R value then in the walls? 27 for the walls. Now that, that's pretty good. We've got, we also have really, really high-end triple-pane Krypton gas-separated windows, and those are uh, R values about 15 to 17. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What about this big window? It looks like, um, I don't know, it must be 10 feet by 4 feet, 5 feet high? That's right. We're calling that our warm light wall. But it looks unlike any window I've ever seen. That's right. This is, um, it's, a, it's an innovative tile design. Each one of those tiles has a couple pints of water in it, as well as uh, a thin layer of aerogel. Aerogel? Aerogel, yeah. Aerogel is a very, very thermally insulated material developed at Cabot Corporation. Uh, very, uh, very light, uh, easy to handle, and it uh, lets light go through it. That was one of our, our key things here, is to let the visible spectrum come through the wall if, uh, and then it'll take all the, the infrared and the UV out. So you've got a very good thermal barrier on the exterior of the house, and I'm very interested to see what this house does in January. We've, we've done calculations so that this house will be the net energy positive year round, and January is gonna be our big test, I think. Net energy positive, meaning that it'll generate more energy than it needs and it could put it back into the grid. That's right, yeah. And January, we'll just have to dial down our usage, but uh, I think we're gonna be wildly net positive th this month and next. What is it gonna cost you to build this house? Well, we are tracking both our real costs and our, our retail costs. We've gotten quite a bit of financial sponsorship with this. So to that extent, this is probably a $250,000 house, which is a lot for 800 square feet, but we're generating probably twice the amount of, of electricity that you would generate if you were, you were actually building an 800 square foot house. One bedroom. One bedroom, yep. One office. Uh, this section here is a long kitchen dining room section. That wall there is the bathroom and utility room in the very back. What's the prize? Bragging rights. The history of this competition is there's been two previous competitions, alternating years, uh, odd years, and Colorado's won both of them. And Colorado is, is far and away the team to beat. Do you have any spies out in Colorado watching what they're doing? No, kind of the opposite. We have uh, people coming back to graduate school at MIT that have participated in previous years on other teams. And that, that kind of experience is, is invaluable to us. MIT's Kurt Kevel. In a sense, you could be a winner in the solar decathlon because many of the construction materials and methods demonstrated in the contest could be used to build an energy sufficient home in your future. This year's solar decathlon promises to be close. There's only so much innovation you can jam into one small house. But by one measure, MIT's entry is unique. It's measured in smoots. The smoot is named for Oliver Smoot, MIT class of 62. As a freshman, his fraternity brothers initiated him by turning him head over heels to measure a bridge connecting MIT to Boston. 
one smoot equals five feet, seven inches, making MIT's MASH, modern all-solar house, about 47 square smoots, give or take a square ear. Pictures and more information about the Solar Decathlon, check out our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, the siren song of the spider. One other thing about spiders, and one of the reasons that I'm interested in them, is they're kind of masters at vibration domain. Um, the, the ones on webs, uh, males, for example, pluck songs to females. Spider-Man on String Bass, coming up on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. This is the sound of the Amazon rainforest. It's one of the richest places on the planet for plants and wildlife, and home to scores of remote indigenous tribes. The forest is also one of the most important places in the world for regulating carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. This too is the sound of the Amazon. Chainsaws and bulldozers have been carving away at the rainforest for decades, clearing land for highways, cattle ranches, and soybean plantations. It's estimated that nearly 20% of the Amazon has been cleared, including an area almost the size of New Hampshire just last year. Much of the destruction of the Amazon forest has taken place on the territory of indigenous tribes. In just a few brief years, members of many of these isolated societies were wrenched from the Stone Age into the Space Age, some driven nearly to extinction by their first contact with the outside world. Almost 20 years ago, Denise Meckel traveled deep into the Brazilian Amazon to photograph and document their struggles. She recently returned with a film crew to examine the changes the people of the rainforest have gone through since her first visit. Her new film is called Children of the Amazon. It focuses on one tribe in particular, the Surui. Denise Meckel says the Surui never had contact with the outside world until the roads were built. The first official contact happened in 1969 when they were still living in what I call in the film forest time. It's a very recent contact and I, I think they had to learn a lot about our society and our world in, in such a small time. So for thousands of years they're living in one way and just 39 years ago everything changed for them. So yeah, it's pretty recent. What's forest time? Well... It's a concept that we kind of use in the film when we interview one of the Surui girls. And she mentions this term, you know, Tempo da Floresta. It's the time they were living by themselves, isolated from settlers and loggers, hunting and fishing. So that's, to me, what's forest time, when they were living in their ways. And then things changed very dramatically in 1969. The Brazilian government and the World Bank team up to build this road right through the heart of uh, Suri territory. And there's a section in your film about that development. It is not enough to build roads. We must colonize for agriculture or for cattle. The land is good. There are green pastures in the forest made of milk and honey. 
de leite e mel. That's when I was growing up and they were building these roads in the Amazon and the military government was really thinking of, you know, the best solution for the Amazon. It was to develop and bring people from other parts of Brazil who had no land to farm. So they're trying to solve all kinds of problems and they thought it was a great idea at that time to, to do it, but they had no idea that the impact was going to be so huge, you know, and destructive. The road brings people and settlers, and the Suri are a warrior tribe, but they can't fight off these people, and they certainly can't fight off the diseases that the settlers bring. Yeah, well, just in the first contact, they shook hands, and then the same evening, they were all sick. You know, they don't have any immune system to a cold, a simple cold, a pneumonia, measles, so they get very sick. The first contact was already a big disaster. 700 people died, so they were like 900 people, they went out to 200. The diseases kill off most of the elders. The culture is decimated. The oral traditions are, are almost lost. Yes, because they have no written um, language, you know, they don't use uh, writing, so everything's passed on from one generation to another, and the elders die. It's like losing an encyclopedia of <laughs> traditions and customs. They, they really don't have any reference, any way to keep teaching the, the new generations. Now, these people don't give up without a fight. Chico Mendes, who was not indigenous, actually, he was a, a rubber tapper, he comes to the area and takes up the cause of, of sustainability of both the culture and the, the, the rainforest, but he pays for it with uh, with his life. Yeah, well, Chico Mendes, his story is that his family came to harvesting rubber, I would say maybe 100 years ago, when he was born in the forest and he was a rubber tapper, and his father was a rubber tapper. You know, he was part of the forest, and he knew how important it was to keep all those forest standing. And he got a passport and flew to the United States and went to do a lot of lobby, and he was heard. In this scene, he's um, being interviewed in his window, and he was uh, holding his son, Sandino, who was at that time two years old. After my trip to the United States, political pressure was put on the international banks that were largely responsible for the devastation of the Amazon because of the projects they funded. He was talking about serious stuff and how his trip to the U.S. had really made a difference, you know, and had created a lot of pressure and things were changing. Projects that had the false slogan of Amazonian development but were a disaster. And Sandino was just playing and looking at us and making those nice sounds. So it's, it's a very beautiful uh, image. Pachico Mendes is murdered. He's assassinated. Yeah, and, and it was a um, very sad chapter of that story because he was fighting with big forces, you know, big economic forces. He was calling attention, international attention to the Amazon. And I think one year after he was here, or the financing of the paving of the road in his state was suspended. And that's when, you know, a lot of uh, ranchers and politicians got really mad at him. But he was very brave, you know. He really felt that was an important thing to do, and he went for it. He asked you to film his funeral. He knew he was going to die. Yeah, he knew, and... Just being around him one month before his assassination, you could tell that it could happen any time. It was very tense. 
and he had already two bodyguards following him around, but it wasn't enough to stop the murders. But the thing is, it's a landless, sorry, a lawless world. You know, it's like the last frontier. People kill each other, no matter what. You know, it's so hard. Everything, the police is so corrupt. It's so complicated. It's so complex. Have you ever been threatened while working there? No, but I had felt a little uncomfortable interviewing some people. I remember one of the people that I felt the most was uh, uncomfortable was one of the ranchers in the state of Acre, where Shiku's from. We knew he was part of this group of ranchers who really wanted to get rid of Shiku, and he was involved in, in Shiku's assassination. We went to do an interview with him, and we just left the, the interview feeling like, oh, my God, maybe there's a bomb <laughs> under the, our car or someone's going to shoot us. And we just felt, you know, anything can happen, you know. You know, Denise, it's interesting. I had a, a recent opportunity to talk to someone who's in your film, Almir Suri. He's now a tribal leader. He was the first one in the tribe to go to college. And when I spoke with him, um, he was along with um, Vasco Van Rumsalan from the Amazon conservation team, and I guess they were touring the United States. But when I spoke with Almir, um, he told me how dangerous it is to, to live in his area. Eu, não, eu sou rebelde porque eu acredito que é possível manter floresta sustentável. He says he's a rebel because he believes that it's possible to maintain the forest in a sustainable way. That seems to be such a dangerous message that uh, his life is threatened. And that's why you have to truly believe and have faith to take this idea to, to society because of its violent reactions to this idea that you can have a standing forest. A floresta dá qualidade de vida para humanidade. still contribute to society. Society, and here I would like to include a side note, is that they are living in a, a real frontier area where people truly believe that development is deforestation. But the only time Omi ever considered selling uh, logs was when his adopted daughter uh, hadn't eaten in two days, hadn't been able to drink milk. And when she was crying at home, he looked at her and he says, and he thought to himself, why don't I just sell out? And he ended up not doing it. But it's not as if these people are sitting in a very comfortable position. Uh, their cultures are being taken away. They don't have many economic options that are being supported. So, Denise, what are the economic options for these people? Well, I think that's what Almir is trying to do now. He's trying to create a sustainable way of living because, you know, there's all these economic forces trying to get logging and miners and he's just trying to create a sustainable way that they can survive and creating projects that are using seeds or oils things from the forest without cutting down trees it's a big challenge but i think Amir has the vision to bring some new opportunities to his people and trying to create an alternative a sustainable way to live in this world now and they're using new technologies. When I spoke with Vasco, he told me about um, the Amazon Conservation Team's uh, project to help map the area. They didn't, never had maps, and they're creating these not just geographic maps, but cultural maps. Let's listen to a, a little of that conversation. They have so much knowledge of their territory, it's really just opening the door to them and giving them very basic tools, GPS devices. It is just sitting them down with the right experts for a week and when they come out, they become expert mappers. And I've seen indigenous mappers draw in freehand creeks onto a base map. And then we've overlaid them just for fun 
uh, with satellite pictures, and they were completely correct. And you can see that as he's drawing it, he's back in his canoe going right and left and right and left. It's amazing their ability and their connection to the land. What an image, huh, Denise? Oh, that's beautiful. It's exactly how I, you know, it, we can connect them from their land. You know, it's so vital part of their everyday life. There's no separation between the tradition, the harvesting, the hunting, everything's so integrated to the forest. But do you think making a map will help these people preserve their culture and defend their territory? Well, I hope so. They have to try anything to, to protect their land and their territory because it's really hard battle there. It's like, you know, the last frontier is the same kind of feeling. You know, it's like the wild west of, of Brazil. It's completely out of control. Well, when I, I talked with Almir, he didn't sound like he was ever going to give up on, on this cause. No, he, he hasn't give up. And as of today, I just talked to him this morning. He was just back from Europe and things are really tense in his hometown. And, and I... I heard that the federal police arrested several loggers in his region, and they're kind of blaming on Almir that that happened. And they're really saying that they were waiting for him to come back to his town to get even with him. So they, they really want to kill him. And I was really desperate to hear that because I, I already heard that from Chico Menes at that time. I told him, you know, just don't stay there. Get out of there. You are a leader. You have to, to survive. And Almir is feeling the same way. And I told him, Amir, I already saw that happening. I already saw this film. Please don't go back. Protect yourself and you're going to be protecting your people much better if you're alive. Well, he says he's not a hero, but um, he told me he's not backing down. Eu não desisto a luta e deixa dizer assim, pode vender porque eu quero o futuro do meu povo. And I haven't sold out because I want the future of my people and of humanity and of the entire world. So if we give up our struggle, what will be the future of the world? What will be the future of the Sului people? What will be the future of the American people or the rest of the world? I feel sorry for those who threaten me uh, when I, I am working to protect the forest because I'm working to protect their future as well. Oh, that's beautiful, but he's dealing with people who are very short-sighted and they don't think that way. They think there are so many trees, the forest is so huge, that's really not going to be a problem to take some trees here and there, but if everyone <laughs> is doing that, then what is going to be left? What do you want to happen as a result of, of your film? Oh, I just, I'd like to contribute to this change in the consciousness. And I just think it's it's a moment that we all have to think that we're all living the same planet and the planet is at high risk. I think it's all so much related that we can just give our backs and think, wow, this is not going to affect me. It's, it is already affecting us all. Denise, thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much. It was very nice talking to you. Brazilian filmmaker Denise Meckel's documentary Children of the Amazon will be shown next year on PBS. You can find the link to the director's website at LOE.org. Se você não me queria, não devia me procurar. You've heard of the movie The Kiss of the Spider Woman? Well, this is the music of the Spider Man. Researcher Damien Elias of the University of Toronto uses a laser Doppler vibrometer to measure and record spiders communicating.
One of the things about spiders, and one of the reasons that I'm interested in them, is they're kind of masters at vibration domain. Um, the, the ones on webs, uh, males, for example, pluck songs to females. It really is like plucking uh, a guitar string. But not all spiders uh, live on webs, and so um, a lot of other spiders, um, they use sort of vibrations, uh, but they're, they're sort of vibrating on leaves or something like that, and not webs. One of the wolf spiders that I work on uh, make their sounds by drumming. They use uh, the patty palps, which are uh, their genitalia, basically, and they bang them against the ground in stereotype patterns. And they also use their legs also, and so they use their petty palps and their legs to drum this love song to females. Jumping spiders have these uh, elaborate um, displays where they, they wave the different legs, they sway back and forth in a, in a very sort of rhythmical fashion. It's kind of like flamenco dancing. I, uh, I kind of see it. The surface that, that, uh, that you heard it vibrating was actually on a nylon surface, uh, actually a pantyhose because it's just easier to control than, say, uh, having them vibrate on leaves or rocks or something because they could be quite complicated, the, the vibrational characteristics of them. I basically came to it with an interest in uh, sensory systems and I was interested in, in acoustics, uh, vibrational or hearing, and uh, they just happen to be such charismatic creatures. I find spiders very charismatic that, that as soon as I started uh, recording from them and it ended up that not a lot of work has been done, so that really quickly kind of fed upon itself and I just really became a great system to study. Damien Elias is a researcher at the University of Toronto. Our story was produced by Jeff Rice for the Hearing Voices radio series. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Kelly Cronin. This week, we welcome our new technical director, Jeff Turton, and say adios to our super interns, Lauren Cox and Amy Fish. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, 
the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.